If you were at the prayer meeting last night, then you heard a splendid word from our brother McAllister. And since he is so rarely in our presence, my one of my main objectives is not to take any of his time to be as quickly down as I can. Acts chapter 13, please. <clears throat> Acts chapter 13. Just one verse, and actually just part of a verse, Acts 13 and verse 36. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell on sleep. David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell on sleep. There are three concepts about David that these words express, three lines of thought that they allow us to follow. The first is, of course, that he served his own generation. Time is precious. Life is precious. He served his own generation. The second is that in that generation, he served or accomplished the will of God. And the third is that the length of his life of service and his very death we're by the will of God. Because those words can go with the sleeping as well as with the serving. So if you'll allow me just to organize it this way, you have the, the call of a gracious God. You have the counsel of an all-wise God. And you have the calendar of a sovereign God. Sometimes when somebody is obsessing about um, secondary things and uh, trivial things, you'll hear somebody say, in fact, I heard not long ago somebody say to somebody, you need to get a life. That's what I want to talk about today. Getting a life. Finding something to do of significance and eternal importance. Think about the, the people that we need to serve. David served his own generation. This is a call that we all have. No matter what our vocation may be day by day, every one of us has been saved to serve. Every one of us has been called to serve. And I don't think when it says his own generation that it means I'm supposed to serve just people who are my age bracket, but rather those who are alive at the same time as we. That's our generation. So that you might say, well, there are some who are serving the Lord. But if you'll allow me to apply this to myself, the moment I forget that I am to serve you, I am not going to be able to serve the Lord. He served his own generation by the will of God. Think, first of all, about how limited we are. Our period of service is very brief. We're all here for a very short time. The longest life is short at best. And the value of time, or as Peter put it, the rest of our time, should be something that deeply concerns us. Just in the past three months, well, let me put it this way. What do these people have in common? Mrs. Sidney Maxwell, Albert Hull, Jim Smith, Norman Lorimer, Frank Volvano. Just in the past three months, nine people with whom I have had a connection or people that I, I knew about, I heard of their death. Life is very short. Our period of service is very brief. If we're thinking about serving our generation, we only have a very short time to do that. Not only that, but our circle of influence is comparatively small. Our family, 
Our fellowship, the assembly that we're in, our friends. Very few of us are going to impact our nation, let alone the world. Our, our time is brief. Our circle is, uh, is, is very limited, very constricted, very small. And our ability to bless others is extremely limited. Every one of us, the best here. You are, I'm, I'm sad to say this, but you are, as I am, imperfect models, faulty examples, failing servants. Not only have we frequently failed, but we have frequently been remiss, lacking to do what we are supposed to do. So I want you to think about how responsible we are. Now, our brother Sona mentioned that in his prayer. I, I want you to think about how responsible we are. And I'd like to ask you to think with me along four areas, and I will keep my eye on the clock. I want you to think about leading our responsibility to lead by example. To build for tomorrow, to pass on the pattern, and to hold to the course, hold steady to the course. Lead by example, build for tomorrow, pass on the pattern, and hold to the course. So when I'm thinking about leading by example, I'm thinking about Moses and his young servant Joshua. And when I'm thinking about building for tomorrow, I'm thinking about Paul and the young disciple Timothy. And when I'm thinking about passing on the pattern, I'm thinking about David and his son Solomon. And when I'm thinking about holding steadily to the, to the course, I'm thinking about Elijah and the young prophet Elisha. Leading by example. Think about how Joshua learned. Joshua learned by being with Moses. Joshua learned by being with Moses. Youth conferences are wonderful. But Joshua learned by being with Moses. It says that he was in the mount with Moses, Exodus 24. And Moses rose up and his minister Joshua and Moses went up into the mount of God. Do you ever stop and think about the disciples and their age? The Lord Jesus was going to leave in their hands his work. They were not men in their 60s and 70s. They were young men, 20s, perhaps maybe in their 30s. But he was entrusting to those young men staggering responsibility. And Moses was able to teach Joshua, as we will learn. Joshua learned by being with Moses. And Joshua learned by another way. He was not only on the mount with Moses, and therefore not part of what was going on down there in the valley where they were worshiping the golden calf. He was on the mount with Moses, but he was in the tent with God. Exodus chapter 33, it says, The Lord spake to Moses face to face, as a man speaks to his friend. And Moses turned again into the camp, but his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, departed not out of the tabernacle. So if you're a young believer today, please remember that your companionship is going to have an incredible impact on your life. Your company, the friends that you, that you develop, that you are with, you will become like them. You will impress them. They will have an effect on you. There is no way of getting around that. And please remember that your personal communion, because he was not only with Moses on the mount, but he was with God in the tent. Your personal communion is absolutely vital. You're only going to run so long on the energy of, of uh, warmth and friendship with other believers and, and what you pick up at a conference. We will only go so far. The batteries will run dead unless we know personal communion ourselves. That's how he learned. Think about what he learned. I think he learned from Moses the holiness of God. When Moses met the Lord in Exodus 3, what did he do? He hid his face and he removed his shoes because the ground was holy. When Joshua met the, the, the captain of the Lord's host in Joshua 5, what did he do? He fell to his face and he removed his shoes because the ground was holy. Where did he learn that? 
Who, who other than Moses wrote so much about the holiness of God and therefore must have been transcribing it and talking about it, the holiness of God? Do you remember that when sin broke out in the camp at Korah's rebellion, what did Moses do? Moses fell on his face, number 16. When sin broke out in the camp in Joshua 7 at Achan's robbery, what did Joshua do? Joshua did the same thing. He fell on his face. When on two occasions Moses warned the people about the snare of idolatry, he reminded them that God is a jealous God. God wants our whole affections because he knows that is how life ought to be lived. When Joshua, as an old man, was charging the people and warning them about idolatry, how did he refer to God? Joshua said, you can't serve the Lord. He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. Joshua picked up so much about God from being with Moses. He learned about the holiness of God. I think he learned about the almightiness of God. At the Red Sea, Moses said, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. The Lord shall fight for you and you will hold your peace. At Kadesh Barnea, we don't learn about this in Numbers. It's not till you get to Deuteronomy. But at Kadesh Barnea, Moses said to the people, dread not, neither be afraid of them. The Lord your God goes before you. He will fight for you. So then what does Joshua say when he gets into the land and they're facing a conglomeration of enemies? Joshua says, fear not, nor be dismayed. Be strong and of good courage. For thus shall the Lord do to all your enemies against whom ye fight. Joshua learned so much about God from being with Moses. Because Moses was leading by example. Think of why he learned. There is a word that occurs twice about the interaction between Moses and Joshua. And this ought to be a very weighty fact to all of us here. Deuteronomy chapter 1, it says, Joshua the son of Nun, which standeth before thee, God says, he shall go in hither, encourage him. Encourage him. For he shall cause Israel to inherit it. Deuteronomy chapter 3, God says, but charge Joshua and encourage him and strengthen him, for he shall go over before this people and shall cause them to inherit the land which thou shalt see. Joshua became what he was because Moses encouraged him to be that. I have no way of proving this. Legend is that Abraham Lincoln's mother said to him when she was dying, Abe, be somebody. Abe, be somebody. If you ever do any uh, reading about what our dear brother Hamilton calls the UK, if you read about any of the, states, the estates that are there, at some point you're going to read about this man. His name was Lancelot Brown. Only after you read about Lancelot Brown, somewhere after that he will no longer be called Lancelot Brown. I always wondered about his unusual nickname that he always went by because I didn't know it was a nickname. And I thought, is this what his mother called him? And why would you ever give your son that name? Because you will read consistently about a man named Capability Brown. You'll read about an estate, and it will say uh, these grounds. These grounds were landscaped by Capability Brown. He changed the face of 18th century England. He designed country estates and mansions. He moved hills. He made um, flowing rivers and lakes, serpentine rivers. A magical world of green sprang from his hand. By the time he was done, he had improved a greater acreage of ground than any landscape architect had ever done before. And his name was Capability Brown. He was given that as a nickname because whenever these, uh, these owners of estates and manors would call him, he would almost invariably look over the ground and he would say, your estate has capability. Your estate has capability. 
In other words, we can do something with this. We can make something of this. You looked at any young believers in the assembly and thought to yourselves, God can make something of her. God can do something with him. I need to encourage him. Now, I think that my preaching has caused a lot of people to sin by lying. Because on the way out, they've said to me, that was a good word. That was a good message. And they know, and I know, that it wasn't. But they're trying to encourage me. There are ways to encourage without lying. To strengthen somebody. You'll see courage built into that word encourage, of course. And it has the idea, if you're French, you know, cour, the heart. It is to give somebody fresh heart to do something. It is to enable them to do better what their responsibilities are. That, that famous Bayou Tapestry has uh, um, William the Conqueror encouraging his soldiers is what it says. And he's actually using his uh, sword, I think it is, although it lo- looks a little longer than a sword. And he's prodding his soldiers toward the battle. He's encouraging them. He's enabling them to do what they were supposed to do. And so if we want to see believers among us become like Joshua's, then... If you're an older believer like Moses, you have the responsibility to encourage. Let me, let, me just, let me just quickly go to the fourth one, holding to the course. When I think about Elijah and Elisha, this is what impresses me, that Elisha's request was for a double portion of Elijah's spirit. In other words, he wanted his ministry to be a projection, a, a carrying on of Elijah's. He wasn't interesting in, interested in uh, launching out into some peripheral course that would be completely different from the way Elijah was serving the people of God and constantly seeking their good. He wanted to be able to just simply carry on this vital work. So, in proof of that, what does he say when the mantle floats down and he comes to the river and he smites the river with the mantle? What does he say? Where is the Lord God of Elijah? Of Elijah. He wanted the same ministry, the same power, the same presence of God with him that had been with Elijah. Now, faithfulness rarely seems heroic when you're doing it. It's, it's, more, it's more like showing up day by day to do what has to be done and hanging on when you feel like letting go. But when faithfulness is most difficult, it is most necessary. And therefore, dear believer, could I just encourage you to just carry on what you have been handed of truth. And to see to it that your, your children and young believers who are coming up among us, that they are handed truth that you have been handed. Intact. As the young generation is served by us. But I want you to think about the counsel of an all-seeing God, an all-wise God. Because this is the purpose that we need to fulfill, accomplishing God's will. At your leisure, if you look up the chapter to verse 22, you have a a verse that bears on this. Paul says, He raised up unto them David to be their king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. He fulfilled the will of God in his generation, despite numerous afflictions. David did not have an easy life. In fact, you remember that one of the Psalms uses that very word and says, Lord, remember David and all his afflictions. Are you afflicted? Are you going through a difficult time? Are you tempted to, to veer away from obeying God and doing his will? Do you remember that, that last verse of First Chronicles chapter 29 and the last verse? I think that's such a, a significant way to put it. It talks about the times 
the times that, that went over him. You almost get the picture of somebody in danger of being swamped by all that was coming his way, the, the times that went over him. And, and my mind doesn't just, uh, my memory doesn't serve me properly here now, but was it David or one of the other psalmists who talked about being led to the rock that is higher when my heart is overwhelmed within me, the rock that was higher? He is seen fighting Goliath. He's seen fleeing from Saul. You remember he, he was seen fearing Absalom and then he had to face Sheba and said, this will be worse than what we faced under Absalom. And then finally he's faltering before the giant Ishbibinab. He was a man who knew many difficulties and troubles in his life. Are you going through a trial right now? Please don't allow the devil to steer you away from doing the will of God. That ought to be one of, if not the prime goal in our lives, that in our generation we serve the will of God. He fulfilled the will of God despite numerous failures. And I think that this is where the devil will hit you the hardest. Satan has a tremendous memory for your failures. He displayed cruelty instead of kindness, didn't he, when he was going to execute Nabal, that foolish farmer. He displayed fear instead of faith when he said, one day I'm going to perish at the hand of Saul. He displayed lust instead of purity in the case of Bathsheba and Uriah. And he displayed pride instead of humility in numbering the people. I think one of the keys about David is that no matter what faults marked him, no matter what mistakes he made, he just kept getting up. And going on, pursuing God. I've wondered sometimes, I've wondered sometimes just exactly what God meant when he said, a man after my own heart. A man after my own heart. Because in the Psalms, he talked about the following after God. It's the idea of pursuit. Pursuit. You're going after someone. You, you want to know someone. And so he was a man who was after God. He, he wanted to win God's heart to, to please God. But then, of course, that word is used, isn't it? Meaning more the idea of a pattern to be followed. See that you make all things after the pattern shown you in the mouth. So it, it has more the idea of according to. So, so is God saying there are similarities to my son in this man that make him a man according to what my heart wants? This is the kind of leader I want. Do, do you remember that wonderful description in the Psalms? where it said that David led God's people by the integrity of his heart and by the skillfulness of his hands. That has been translated as he led them with a pure heart and with intelligent mastery. That's a remarkable thing. And I think that if we bear in mind that this man who had failures just as we have always sought their good. Always sought their good. So that when he watched the, the angel with the sword poised over the city of Jerusalem, what did he call God's people? He said, let that sword be on me. These sheep, what have they done? These sheep. That's the shepherd boy. That's, that, that's the boy that fought the lion and the bear. Looking at God's people and thinking they're God's flock and they need to be protected. A man after my own heart. He fulfilled the will of God despite numerous failures. So let me say that we each need to find that will and fulfill it despite our circumstances. There is, of course, the truth of knowing the will of God. Ephesians 5 tells us, be not unwise, but understand what the will of God is, knowing it. There is the truth of doing it. Psalm 143, the psalmist said, teach me to do thy will, for thou art my God, thy, thy spirit is good. But there is the example left by our Lord Jesus of loving the will of God. I delight to do thy will, O oh my God, thy law is within my heart. 
The will of God involves things that are very general and never change. For instance, 1 Thessalonians 4, this is the will of God, even your sanctification. The next chapter says, this is the will of God, and everything give thanks. Peter also uses it two times. He says, so is the will of God, that by well-doing you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. And again, wherefore let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. That never changes throughout the generations of the Lord's people to be sanctified, to be thankful and grateful, to be doing well, to be patiently suffering. 24 hours a day and 365 days of the year, of course. The Tomb of the Unknown Soldier in Arlington National Cemetery has a guard. That guard has changed every hour on the hour. So, 24 soldiers every day, 365 days every year. And every hour on the hour, when the new soldier approaches, the old soldier, the one who was there before him, says the same thing. Three words. Orders remain unchanged. One hour later, orders remain unchanged. For us as well, orders remain unchanged. You've trusted Christ. Have you been baptized? Orders remain unchanged. You've been baptized. Have you come into fellowship in an assembly to give honor to the name of the Lord Jesus? Orders remain unchanged. Because a vital thing in your life is to know and do and grow to love the will of God. But, of course, there's something that can be very specific about that will. And I would like to challenge you, and this, of course, has more bearing to young believers here. Have you discovered what God's will is for your life? We're often reminded about Paul's words in Acts chapter 9 when he said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? The interesting thing is that in Acts 22, when he's giving the account of his conversion, he says that uh, when Ananias came in to see him, he said, The God of our fathers has chosen thee, that thou shouldst know his will, and see that just one, and should hear the voice of his mouth. How did he write to believers? Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. What's God's will for your life? Have you found it? Are you doing it? This weekend, as you're sitting here, have you asked God to speak to you and direct your life so that your life captures, captures doing the will of God, that you get a life by doing in your generation God's will? I love the way C.S. Lewis puts it. Not everybody likes his writings, but here's how he put it. In obeying when a Christian obeys, in obeying, a rational creature consciously enacts its creaturely role. Reversing the act by which we fell treads Adam's dance backward and returns. Got that? In obeying, a rational creature consciously enacts its creaturely role, doing what he ought to do as a creature before his great creator, reverses the act by which we fell, which was disobedience, treads Adam's dance backward and returns. Takes the opposite course to a man who said, I will do my will. 
but reverses that and says, I bow me to thy will, O God, and all thy ways adore, and every day I live I'd seek to please thee more and more. I need to close. I want you to think about the calendar of a sovereign God. This is the prospect that we need to remember. Because one of the ways that the Greek of the verse allows us to think is that it was by the will of God that David fell on sleep. Our times, our lives, they're in his hand. If a man is immortal until his work is done, then you, it's, it's advantageous as well as, as incumbent on you and me to find that work and do it. Because the length of our life is all in the hand of God. There is a, a peace to the spirit, no matter what the body is enduring at the last. I was thinking that in connection with Mr. Volvano's funeral, that when you, you think of Stephen, there would be very few ways to die that would be more violent than being stoned to death. What an amazing thing that in a scene of violence and, and brutality, it says he fell on sleep. He fell on sleep. That no matter what is happening to the body of a believer when he dies, he falls asleep as his spirit leaves to be with Christ. Because there is a hand that gently touches believers at the moment of death, that they sleep through Jesus, that there is a hope that they and we have, right? Those who sleep through Jesus, God will bring with them. And however you view that, whether you think he's saying at the rapture, he will bring them back, whether you're thinking we will all come together when he comes to set up the kingdom and they will not miss anything, however you wish to look at that. What a wonderful thing that we have this hope, that those who sleep through Jesus, God will bring with them and that we will meet again around the throne of God and of the Lamb. A.W. Tozer put it this way, what a hope that makes it possible for the Lord's people to lie down quietly when the time comes and whisper, Father, I am coming home. That's the calendar of a sovereign God. How long I'll live. How long I will be permitted to serve him. How long you and I will be here to serve our own generation. That's not left up to the whims of violent people around us. That's not in the hands of some drunkard who's going to get in his car tonight and drive the same time when you're... That, 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 that's not up to circumstances. Your life, your soul, your times, it's all in the hand of a sovereign God. So I hope that as we listen to the ministry further, that we will remember that the way to get a life is to give a life. To serve our own generation and to serve the will of God, as long as God allows us to serve him here.